0: You'll see from the outline that we are in chapter one, a large section, verses two through thirty-six, which is uh, the 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 conquest of what we call the promised land. And so, the first part of that outline is God delivers, and we read uh, we did the first eight verses last Wednesday. So we are prepared to start with verse nine this afternoon, and the conquest continues of the territory. South and west of Jerusalem, so on the back of your outline today is a map that came right out of one of my Bibles, and much like the maps you have in your Bibles, but I wanted you to have it at your fingertips, and so if you want to flip over there at any point to see if you can find some of the places that are mentioned, that would be that would be great now, um, so you might want to look for Jerusalem, kind of uh, go down to number four. On the, on the map code, it would be right about four B and a half. <laughs> four B and a half. And, and if you'll spot Jerusalem, and so we'll start out kind of in that area this afternoon. So allow me to go back to verse eight. The men of Judah, so you'll see the tribe of Judah is marked out for you there on your map. After that, uh, the men of Judah, attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Now, to you and I, that sounds like total conquest, ready to occupy. But if you leapfrog to verse 21 of chapter 1, you'll see that not quite so. It says the Benjaminites. So, wait a minute. Judah did that, but now this is really in the tribe of Benjamin So how did this happen? I don't know. I know there's a reason, but Benjamin is the tribe that controls Jerusalem. So it says the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. So we'll talk about what that means shortly, but it sounds like We introduced this thought last week. It sounds like an incomplete obedience or partial obedience. Now, when you, most of you are parents. So how did it go over in your house when your children were, when they practiced incomplete obedience? Well, that didn't work at our house. We just simply equated that with disobedience instead of saying, well, you know, the glass is half full, so yeah, that, that'll be good enough. No, the glass needs to be full. So how does God view this incomplete obedience? Well, we're going to find out not only in this chapter, but in our entire journey through through judges. So it is interesting for us to know historically that Jerusalem will not be conquered again by Israel until what king? David. Until David in Second Samuel chapter 5, and that is chronologically a time period of almost 400 years. That'll sober you up, won't it? Our nation's not even close to 400 years old. And so Jerusalem will not... Belong to Israel until another four hundred year almost four hundred years passes and David takes the city now some of the the, the, the cities and the places that are mentioned here we' today it's we're this difficult we don't know exactly where some of these places were uh, in fact there's some places that have multiple names and others where uh, the name of a place is used two or three times, and indicating two or three different places, which is not um, not all that uncommon. Um, my wife was born in Athens, Texas. Well, there's an Athens in about fifty of the fifty states, so you know we do that. We name the same places, the city by the same names, so they did that here. So some places we can look on our map and we say, there it is right there. Other places we don't know for certain. We may be able to kind of say generally in this area, but we don't know for certain where everything is. But as we look at verses 9 through 20, the first thing that I put there is God delivers. So I want us to look at that. Let's begin with verse 9. I'm going to read through 20, and then we'll sort of dissect that a bit. After that, that is Jerusalem. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. We'll talk about where those places are in a moment. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Shishai and Iman and Talmai. I'm sure I pronounced those perfectly. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, now watch these words from Caleb. I will give my daughter, Oksa. Who would name their daughter, Oksa? Okay. (laughs) I will give my daughter, Oksa, in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel Son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him, or, we're not quite certain of that Hebrew translation there. It can also be, it can also be translated, he urged her. And I think that is the more accurate translation because what happens? She is the one who approaches Caleb, not him. So either she urged him and then said, never mind, I'll do it. Or he urged her, which is more likely. So he urged her to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? I mean, you know, she's pretty smart. Most dads are much more likely to do what the daughter asks than if the son-in-law asks. Isn't, that, isn't that right? So, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Very wise request, because the Negev is what kind of land? Desert land. So he gives to her what she asks for, the upper and the lower springs, so she has a source of water that will meet all of her and her family's needs for generations to come. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms. What city would that be? Jericho, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Now, you may have a note in your Bible, I do, but that word totally destroyed It does mean annihilation. I mean, wipe out, destroy the city. But it also carries with it the giving over of things and people to the Lord. So they are destroying this place and giving over the the loot that they gather, giving that over to the Lord and dedicating this place to him. So it's more than just the word destroyed. There's a lot of uh, color to that word. Therefore, it was called Hormah, and Hormah means destruction. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. Now, two more verses, and we'll stop and talk. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. Now, I want to go back and let that sentence, that first sentence, whirl around in our minds and in our hearts Because this is what the people will forget over and over and over again. The Lord was with the men of Judah. And he was going to be with his people in the conquest of this land totally and completely. If only they would trust in him and look to him and be totally obedient. How quick we forget. Because they practiced Partial obedience. Now, verse 19, let's finish that. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. You see, this is the level, level land. Chariots do better on flat, level plains, flat, level land. They don't do well up in the hill country. And historically, in those days, Israel was stronger when they were in the hill country than when they took the battle to the plains, the level ground. And here, in this case, chariots frightened them. But there is someone who was not afraid of chariots. And who was that? It was God. God was not afraid of chariots. And he would have given them the victory over the chariots. If only they had looked to him, trusted him, and practiced total obedience. Verse 20, as Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. Okay, let's stop there for a a few moments. God delivers. The hill country... Is between Jerusalem and Hebron. If you want to look at your map, you can see Jerusalem and go southwest and you'll see Hebron. So that area is the hill country. You know in your Bible that it says in many places they went up to Jerusalem. Now normally here when we say I'm going up to, I'll say I'm going up to Dallas. Well, that has nothing to do with the elevation of Belton or Dallas. It means I'm going north. I'm I'm going up to Dallas. I don't say I'm going up to Austin. Not from here. That's south. I'm going down to Austin. But biblically, when it says they were going up to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter whether they were going from the north, south, east, or west. It means they were going up elevation-wise to the high ground in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem... And Hebron, and between that area, is the hill country. The Negev is farther south, and it is the desert land from Hebron to Kadesh Barnea. Now, Kadesh Barnea is not in your map because the map that I would have had to include Kadesh Barnea way, way down south in the Negev would have made uh, the map wording so small that none of us could have read it. So I opted to not include that far south but just imagine in your mind going way down south beyond anything on your map that's the Negev Hebron to Kadesh Barnea and the western foothills that he mentions in verse 9 10 and 11 is the area between the coastal plains so go west to what the Mediterranean and back to the middle that's the central mountain range and which it is the central mountain range and so that area in between the central mountains And the ocean is the western foothills, the coastal plain. You know, like here we have a coastal plain down around the Gulf. Most places do that are near the ocean. It goes down to a flatland, coastal plain. So here's the area God is delivering into Israel's hands. Now Hebron, very interesting place, Um, associated with Abraham if you go back to Genesis chapter 13 and we went through Genesis just a few months ago it became the capital of Judah Hebron did became the capital of Judah for the first seven years of King David's reign until he captured Jerusalem and then made that his capital Hebron is associated with Caleb for obvious reasons here in the text and in verse 12 as we read about Caleb we remember we remember Caleb and his running buddy Joshua. And we remember that Caleb and Joshua with ten other Israelites were the spies who went in to spy out the land. Ten of the spies brought back a majority report which said, we can't do it. Don't pay attention to what God said. We can't do it. They're too big, they're too strong, they have fortified cities, their army's too tough, we can't do it. We we can't do it. (laughs) What they were really saying is, we won't do it. We're not going to do this, we'll get slaughtered. We didn't come out of Egypt to come up here and get slaughtered. The best, just go back to Egypt. Now, the minority report was issued by Joshua and Caleb, and their report was not at all concerned about fortifications around the cities, armies, weapons, numbers. They were not concerned about that at all. only thing they were concerned about is obedience to God. And Joshua and Caleb said, this land, you know, like the song, this land is our land. We're going to take it. Why? Not because we're so tough and rough and strong. Not because we've got an army that's been training for 20 years. We'll take it because God said this land is yours. What did the people do? They said, we'll take the majority report. And what did God say? Okay, then you can wander around in the desert for 40 years and the only two people from your generation who are going to go into the promised land are who? Joshua and Caleb. So we read again here about Caleb. I, I love him. Isn't it Caleb, help me with my memory, isn't it Caleb who, when he was 80 years of age, said to Moses, give me the hill country, give me the toughest, roughest land. I'm just as vigorous now as I ever was. Give it to me and I will take it. I love that. So next time you get out of bed and you're feeling your aches and your pains, just remember Caleb. So Caleb is what all Israel Should have been. Fearless, faithful, obedient. Fearless, faithful, obedient. Now these days, only a few people still have words carved on their headstones. Most of the time it just says your name and date of birth, dash, date of passing. Maybe some put a verb, maybe some put something, but, but if I were to have something put on my headstone, I would want it to be, and I would, it needs to be the truth before anybody can put it on there, but I would want it to be fearless, faithful, and obedient. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Fearless, faithful, and obedient. That describes Caleb, and Caleb's a good father. How do I know that? We'll look at the kind of husband that he wants for his daughter. Caleb wants a husband for his daughter who is fearless, faithful, and obedient. And so he says, if there's a man among you who will take this city, then you can have my daughter, Aksa. Uh, now, you know, you say, how could he, you know what kind of man is he? Joshua, uh, Caleb's not concerned about any of those details. Not concerned about is he tall and muscular, or is he short and eats too much, or what, what kind of person is he? Didn't they even inquire um, about what he does for a living, or is he smart, or is he not so smart? All Caleb wants is a man who is fearless, faithful, and obedient. And if there's a man like that, he'll be happy for his daughter to marry that man. Who did it turn out to be? Othniel. Now, we're just going to catch a short glimpse of Othniel here. We'll see a bigger picture of Othniel when we get to chapter 3. Now, I'm impressed. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, they say. I'm impressed with Aksa. Again, I can't... I hope nobody here named their daughter Oxa, But anyway, Aksa is a woman of action. You notice? She's a woman of action, like her father. So she's given the land in the Negev, an enormous plot of land, and she goes to her father and says, I'm going to need some water. Can you give me the upper and lower springs? And Caleb says, sure, baby, it's yours. I give it to you. I give it to you. Most dads don't know how to say no to their daughters. Right, Barbara? (laughs) I've always told our church that my dad could say no to me in ten languages, even though the only language he spoke was English. (laughs) He never knew how to say no to her. So no no back talk. Just sit there. I don't want to make her sorry that she moved here, but. (laughs) Aksa is a woman of action and she gets what she requests from her father. Now Othniel verse 13 is likely the nephew of Caleb. Now the grammar is uncertain there as to whether it's the younger brother or, 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 or the nephew, but I think most assuredly it would be the nephew of, of Caleb. So, Caleb, Othniel, Aksa stand as a rebuke to the rest of the people. Their obedience, their action, their desire to please God, not partially but totally stand in contrast to what we're going to see repeatedly in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of the book where so many of the people are satisfied with partial obedience. So in verses 14 through 18 we see the success that God gives to his people. So remember this is not this is this is a ragtag outfit. Nobody could look at Israel, the tribes and say what a well-equipped army, what a well-trained army. They've been working on this plan for 50 years, boy, they are well-trained. No, they weren't well-trained. And they certainly weren't well equipped. But when they said, we will follow you, God, and we will be obedient to you, he gave them success. It's too bad that there is more following verse 18. But when we get through verse 18, we then begin to see an incomplete obedience. And it begins with the 19th verse, Israel feared the chariots of the Canaanites. Plains, the level ground, perfect place for chariots to operate. They're, they're effective there, not effective in the hill country. Israel liked to fight in the hills, and they were scared. Judah, speaking of the tribe, Judah does not trust in God's strength. Although they had previously, they now say, "Uh, oh, not not going to do that. They measure their own strength against their enemy's strength, and they fail to push the chariot-owning plain dwellers out of the land. Humanly speaking, I understand the feeling. They're looking at those chariots, fierce warriors. It is frightening. But what did God say back in Joshua? We've journeyed through that book also. Fear not, I am with you. Judah forgot. They saw the chariots and the warriors who were in the chariot, and they said, "No, we can't do that. They're they're going to—they'll whip us. We just can't do it." So common sense prevails. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Common sense—I mean, it's common sense. Look at those chariots. I'd be what in the world? Judah would be slaughtered, common sense says. However, one problem. Common sense is faithless sense in this text. Common sense is faithless sense. Judah does not trust God, so they do not secure their inheritance so that they may worship God without compromise. The Canaanites will be a thorn in their flesh for centuries because of incomplete obedience. So remember as we talk about common sense and horse sense, if common sense becomes faithless sense, then it no longer is common sense, it's sinful sense. So when God says, obey me, and we look at it and we say, that doesn't make any sense, but God, because you said it, I'm going to do it, then God will bless. When we say, God, that doesn't make a lick of sense, I know what you said, but surely you didn't mean it, so I'm not going to do it. That's when we're in trouble. It's not a lack of strength or resources that's a problem, although... Judah didn't have that much strength, and they sure didn't have many resources. That wasn't the problem. It was a lack of faith in God's strength that was the problem. The one who directs us and promises to bless us will do exactly that when we're obedient. So when we base our decisions on our own calculations instead of simply obeying God, we become like Judah. Othniel attacked in God's strength And in obedience to him, and he won the victory. So halfway fellowship is doomed to embarrassing failure. And that's what's about to happen to Israel. Now, yep, I thought we were about out of time. So let's look at verse 21, and that's where we'll stop. The Benjamites, however did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. To this day. And they would live there for another almost 400 years. So needless. And yet that's the result of disobedience or I'll be nicer and say an incomplete obedience. Okay, next week we'll start with, um, with verse 22 and uh, continue on. I know it's a lot of geography and a lot of, uh, following walks and battles in the book of Jud- Jud- Judges, but remember this, one of the major applications for us is there must be a desire in our hearts for total obedience to God. What does His Word say? That is sufficient. We will follow you, God, and let you take care of all the details. And He will. So Father, I pray that we would be totally and completely obedient to You, not partially, not halfway, But totally obedient to you, knowing that as we are, you will give us the victory. And we claim that victory today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.